You're listening to Civic from the San Francisco Public Press. On this edition, we'll get an expert's take on recent announcements about planned investments in homelessness and how to effect significant change. If I'm investing in permanent housing, then I can invest in prevention because those people are already housed and the the biggest uh, need is for those who are unhoused. But when I was running um, Hamilton Families, which is an organization that works to end family homelessness in the Bay Area, for every family I would house, three more families would become homeless um, during the same period of time. And that is a statistic that is is ravaging the, the entire state of California. I'm Laura Wenis, and this is Civic. Before we get started... At the Public Press, which is Civic's parent organization, we've been working really hard during this pandemic to pursue angles we're not seeing much coverage of elsewhere, or to take a more systemic look at the issues that are surfacing in the headlines. The San Francisco Public Press is a nonprofit, and we're inspired by the public radio model. That's the idea that people who are able to support the work that we do so everyone can have access to it without paywalls or ads. If you think we're onto something, we'd very much appreciate if you could show your support. You can do that by going to sfpublicpress.org slash donate or by helping us get the word out about this show. Subscribe on whichever podcast platform you use or leave us a review. It really does help. So thanks. Local and state officials have been announcing their intentions to invest billions into addressing homelessness. And two reports laying out strategies to bring the majority of unsheltered people in the region indoors have made headlines in recent months. But, of course, it's never as simple as one investment or a single formula. So to put this news into perspective, I've been talking with leaders in this field about the big shifts it would take to move toward a solution. Today we'll hear from Tamika Moss, founder and CEO of All Home, a regional organization working to disrupt cycles of poverty and homelessness and create more economic mobility for extremely low-income people. I'd like to get your perspective on how housing creation and homelessness prevention interact. I think there's a lot of conversation about how much housing we have to build to address homelessness. And that seems to be only part of the formula. But one element of a recent report on addressing homelessness in the region from the Bay Area Council is the imbalance between the jobs created and the housing supply we have had in recent years. So between 2011 and 2017, the Bay Area created 4.3 jobs for every Every one new unit of housing that was approved. I wanted to just bring that up and see if you could speak to how much of an effect that's had on the number of people who are totally unsheltered and whether you think that the economic shifts from the pandemic have changed that landscape at all. Well, I think that we have had a housing and jobs imbalance for a really long time and we have under underproduced enough housing at deeply affordable levels Uh, for people who need it. And so when I talk about deeply affordable, I'm really talking about extremely low income households, folks who are earning less than $35,000 a year for a household of three. So we we often refer to that as the ELI population. And in in the Bay Area, before the pandemic, there were more than 820,000 households who were in that income category. About 40% of those households are experiencing homelessness. And so when we, when we think about um, prevention, um, from my perspective, we have to be looking at how do we keep as few of those households from entering into the homeless system as possible 
because once they have entered into the homelessness system, it's really difficult to rehouse people because of the insufficient supply, as well as um, you know the trauma and crisis that a housing um, disruption uh, causes. Mm-hmm. And so from my perspective, we've had to make these choices in our public policy and resources conversations around, you know, one or the other type of investments. If I'm investing in permanent housing, then I can invest in prevention because those people are already housed and the the biggest uh, need is for those who are unhoused. But when I was running um, Hamilton Families, which is an organization that works to end family homelessness in the Bay Area, for every family I would house, three more families would become homeless um, during the same period of time. And that is a statistic that is um, that is ravishing the the entire state of California. Mm -hmm. So unless we start looking at inflows, which I think the Bay Area Council report is really talking about, we're never going to be able to get ahead of the problem because we're not able to house people fast enough. Then they're they're then they're becoming homeless. Yeah, I mean, it just seems like such a problem of competition for not enough resources on so many fronts. If you don't have enough housing to begin with, then people are going to be competing all of a sudden with probably higher income, you know, arrivals who because we're creating more higher income jobs and they are all there's like there's more pressure on the existing housing market. And then when people, you know, are forced out and end up in the homelessness system, there's also this conflict of well, who has the higher need. It sounds exactly like. And that's what, I mean, just a very specific example to that, Laura, was in Oakland. Between 2017 and 2019, homelessness increased 43% in those two years. So the people who were housed in 2017, who were living on in, in housing that they could afford uh, at minimum wage or a little higher wage jobs, those folks lost their housing, part of it because of the, the pressure on the housing market, Higher earners took over those homes, those rentals, and those folks have been homeless ever since. So we see the rapid impact of the economic crisis happening in our communities uh, just in that two year that two year window. I mean, it just sounds demoralizing that having to house, you know, a family and then, you know, three more waiting. Like, (laughs) where do you turn? Well, and imagine, though, I mean, part of our challenge is that once you become homeless, the system is not really designed for somebody who's newly experiencing a housing crisis to be rehoused quickly. A lot of the coordinated entry system, which is the way in which um, cities and counties prioritize who gets housing, who is experiencing homelessness, it's focused on the highest acuity and chronicity of the individual. Mm-hmm. So if you've only been homeless for six months or 18 months or 12 months, you may not be prioritized in the housing options because you you haven't been in the system long enough. And yet we still don't have enough housing for those who have been homeless and are physically and emotionally disabled mm-hmm. uh, either. So not only do we not have enough permanent housing for those who qualify, even those who are newly homeless and needing support, we don't have a response for them. So that's why we're really trying to create more resources across a broader continuum of interventions so that we don't have to see people get sicker in order to qualify for services and housing. 
Right, exactly. I mean, if you don't get priority until you're at that level, then you're going to probably get to that level of need. Exactly. Uh, well, I, I guess I'll come back to this. Um, the That intense competition for rental housing sounds like it was kind of the product of, you know, adding a ton of jobs, which to me sounds like economic boom. Well, we've just had a serious blow to our economy because of the coronavirus pandemic. In San Francisco, rents fell. In other areas of the region, they did not. How do you see this playing out when it comes to the effect that the pandemic and its its economic fallout are going to have on homelessness? Well, there are projections that suggest that homelessness is, is has increased during the pandemic anywhere from 30 to 40 percent. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the challenge is the workers who experienced the pandemic the worst were those households that I was telling you about. Yeah. These are the extremely low uh, income workers who, you know, one or both members of the household were working minimum wage jobs. Those were the folks who had to keep going to work. Those were the folks who were exposed to the pandemic in the worst way. We saw that very clearly in San Francisco with the just insane disproportionate impact for our Latinx households and neighbors. And so there's just downward pressure on on both the housing market and the the um, economic impacts. And so those who were already on the fringe, on the margins of maintaining their um, their homes and their income, those were the folks who were first hit. And so if we're going to see an equitable recovery, we have to be able to make sure that it goes deep enough into those communities, ensuring that those extremely low income workers are actually getting back into the labor market and being able to generate enough resources to start to stabilize. And and frankly, if they lost their housing, the rental assistance programs that both the state and the local jurisdictions are running, I think can be a resource for getting that back rent paid and keeping the housing. But if they've lost the housing, then we need to really be thinking about what are the economic supports we need to put in place to ensure that those families and those individuals can get into housing again. Yeah. Uh, maybe this uh, is an answer to a question I was going to bring up, which is that one of the points that the landing page for All Homes Regional Plan for Reducing Homelessness, I think it's by 75% of the next few years, really mm-hmm. hammers home, is that the time to act is now. Why is now a particularly good moment to implement some of these approaches? Well, I think we have a, di- a different different uh, motivation and precedent. Uh, when the governor launched Project Room Key, where they quickly leased up the hotels and motels across the uh, state to ensure public safety for people experiencing homelessness, they brought 15,000 people indoors within nine months. Mm. They uh, relaxed the requirements, they removed the barriers. That's the level of urgency that we need to be continuing and maintaining in order to bring the rest of the 30, the, <laughs> the remaining unhoused people indoors as quickly as possible. My, my worry, my fear is first, if we don't extend the eviction moratorium that expires at the end of June, we will see mass evictions happening across our state that will further um, harm our most vulnerable residents. Mm-hmm. Secondly, 
if in fact we aren't figuring out how to make sure that the people who are still outside get brought in as quickly as possible, those folks get sicker, they have fewer resources the longer they're outside. And so that's why we're calling for maintaining that momentum and, and acting quickly. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about some of the approaches here. We talked a little bit about housing and what's out there, but all housing is not the same thing when it comes to addressing homelessness. I'm hoping you could talk a little bit about the differences between and the various characteristics of, for example, transitional housing versus permanent supportive housing. Yeah, great question. Well, transitional housing, I think, um, is is a type of housing that that I has has really fallen out of best practice. I think from a national perspective, for people who um, are advancing homelessness policy, it's a very high cost, high touch housing intervention. And I think folks have you know figured at the, um, made a choice around rapid rehousing, which is a shorter uh, rental subsidy and supportive services that get people housed quicker, but you don't have access to that rental subsidy for very long, depending on where you are in the region or in the country. Mm. And I, what, what we propose is that not everyone needs permanent supportive housing, which has traditionally been the housing type that folks thought all homeless people needed. If, you, if, if we just have enough permanent supportive housing that has wraparound services, intensive supports, uh, you know, rental subsidy forever. That's what people need. Well, that's what some people need. Sorry, just to clarify for those of us who aren't always in this <laughs> frame of yes. mind. Um, so it sounds like permanent supportive housing is housing where you not only have a place to stay, but you also have contact with social workers and um, people who are helping you get access to the things that you need, be it healthcare or whatever, versus transitional housing, which is that, but for a short period of time where the goal is to get you out into either permanent supportive housing or some other kind of permanent situation. Is that right? That's exactly right. Okay. Yeah. Sorry, go on. And- and, and, and so in terms of the housing types, we're trying to expand folks thinking about what kinds of housing can actually meet people's needs. And about a quarter of people across the region need that deeply intensive supportive service model, the permanent supportive housing. Hmm. About two thirds of folks just need really deeply affordable housing that they can afford. Some might need a little bit of housing support to transition back inside. Some folks might need a little bit more uh, time to get back on their feet in terms of their incomes. But I think what we've, we've had a very monolithic housing response system for people experiencing homelessness. Mm-hmm. And we're trying to really um, broaden the, the housing continuum for people who whose housing crisis is impacted and motivated by an economic shock, which is the majority of folks in the region, and then making sure we have enough supportive housing for people who need that level of of support and all the interim housing that I talk about, which is how do we bring people inside quickly? Tiny homes, rental subsidies, you know, navigation centers. There's a lot of innovation happening in the region that is designed to bring folks inside quickly and start working to trans- transition them into permanent housing options. And that's what we think is necessary to scale in order to address that 75% reduction in unsheltered homelessness. 
Yeah, I was going to ask you to talk a little bit more about those new innovative strategies. But first, it sounds like this just goes back to the problem that you outlined earlier in this conversation, which is that if we're prioritizing the people who have the highest need, those people sound like they might be more likely to need permanent supportive housing. And if people who aren't getting inside when they could just get it, like when all they need is just a place to stay, then their situation worsens. And then at some point, they're going to need that permanent supportive housing, right? That's that's exactly and that's it's almost the the tail wagging dog or whatever whatever that saying is um that's why we're fighting so hard to help jurisdictions think about simultaneous investments in these various housing types so that you actually have a response for the different types of needs of people who are having a housing crisis if we only focus on supportive housing production then we're missing all those folks i told you about in Oakland, in uh, San Mateo, in San Jose, all around the region who, you know, um, could have with three or $400 rehoused Mm -hmm. in 90 days and not have to languish on our streets. So that's why we're trying to insert these interventions at the time and place where people need them so that they don't continue to deteriorate. I'm speaking with Tamika Moss, founder and CEO of All Home. Well, I'm hoping that you could explain the formula that All Home has for this because you you have sort of a ratio outlined. What is the one to four formula? How does that work? What does it mean? So the formula is a framework, Laura, and it really is designed to give jurisdictions an opportunity to assess what their community actually needs with respect to interim housing, permanent housing exits and prevention interventions. So we've done some modeling across the nine county Bay Area, and that's where the one, two, four um, framework uh, comes from. For every one interim housing option, you need to simultaneously be investing in two permanent exits. So anyone who's coming into the homelessness system or has been in it, we need two permanent exits for them. That could be a long-term rental subsidy, could be a voucher, it could be supportive housing, it could be shared housing, it could be an SRO. We are completely open and broad in our definition around permanent exits. That simultaneous investment in permanent housing needs a four times investment in prevention. So for every one interim housing um, investment you're making, you should be making two permanent housing investments and for prevention investments. That way, what we're really trying to do is create flow so that people aren't getting stuck in the system and not having access to the type of housing intervention that they need. And this ratio is flexible. As I said, the one to four is is applied to all nine counties, but you might be in, in San Mateo County and you only might need you know, one interim um, intervention and three permanent exits and five uh, prevention. So all homes job in our implementation work is to work with the jurisdictions to really set those ratios based on their population needs and then figure out how they're currently spending their resources against that framework. And then if there are gaps Our work is to advocate both at the state, federal, and regional level to ensure that there are resources that can fill those gaps. So that's kind of our process, both for implementation 
and the the rationale for the one two four framework. Mm-hmm. And I I want to also when talking about resources, just put this question to you more broadly. Um, we've been hearing a lot about you know the mayor of San Francisco wants to invest a billion dollars in addressing homelessness locally over the next two years. The governor wants to invest, I think it was twelve billion. Um, you know, sometimes reports are framed in terms of this is how much money it would take to address homelessness. I'm just wondering what you think of that framing at all. Should we try? Should we be looking for a price tag on how much it would take to solve this? I mean, I I would kind of reverse the process a bit and look at what we're trying, what our goals are and what outcomes we're driving toward and then put a price tag to the goals. That's what we try to do with the regional action plan. Mm-hmm. If we want to get to a 75% reduction in unsheltered homelessness over the over the next three years, that is the goal by which we are met, that we then cost it out. Mm-hmm. It would cost, and we've costed it out by county, so that each jurisdiction understands if your ratio happened to be one to four, this is what it would cost you. And if it moves on the sc- on the ratio scale, then your cost may vary. So I tend to think rather than the big price tag numbers that we in the headlines, we really want to be targeting how do we get to population level reductions and work backwards on the price point? Because if we start with the money, then we can get trapped in the outputs and not outcomes. That's kind of how we've designed our homelessness system, which is just, it's a reactive system. It's never been designed to eliminate the problem, Hmm. to get to functional zero. And so for me, a billion dollars sounds like a lot to some people, but if you think about a unit of permanent housing and supportive housing costing, particularly in San Francisco, anywhere from six hundred to eight hundred thousand dollars a unit, that money doesn't go very far. Mm-hmm. So that's why we have to be strategic about what we're trying to solve for, and then pricing that accordingly and going after those resources. Well, exactly. I mean, that, I was going to bring that up too. That's the the price tag on a unit of housing in San Francisco is exorbitant. Um, and so I'm hoping you could um, expand what you were saying earlier a little bit about um, the different innovative approaches to this, like interim solutions, things that can be done quickly that don't take as many resources immediately um, that that help at least get someone off the street or that in another way in in any other way have a a significant difference on, on, sorry, have a significant impact on the experience of somebody who is actually living out on the street right now. That's right. Look, I I think uh, project home key was a bright spot in um, supporting innovation in bringing different housing types online quickly. So we had really amazing projects like the one down in Santa Clara County, where they brought on 300 modular uh, units that are interim housing um, that can be transitioned into permanent housing over time in nine months. Um, in Mountain View, there was this fantastic partnership with um, Life Moves and Saris Regis that brought on, um, they're calling kind of um, interim housing with supports. They have on-site support services. It, it houses families and single adults it has a, a play center, or a, a child care center, modular 
went up in nine months. Mm. So home key having flexible uses in its ability to use those those dollars, acquire the properties, rehab them, um, get the land, get the deal done, and then start moving folks in. That's the kind of innovation that we need and frankly, the speed we need to, to get to the scale of the problem. And I think in some communities, there's still political resistance to different typologies like modular. Um, some say factories can't produce enough housing at scale. So there's a lot of, again, these constraints that I think have made it really difficult for us to keep up with supply. Mm -hmm. But if we're gonna tackle homelessness, we have to do things like um, Oakland did, the, the Bay Area uh, Community Services, BACS. They started buying single family homes and converting those single family homes into shared housing for seniors. Hmm. Everybody gets a locked door. You have a communal type of kitchen and, um, and com- you know, sort of communal space for seniors to actually be supportive of one another. Price point was about a hundred thousand, you know, whatever the price is to buy the single family home, they're able to bill Medi-Cal for their onsite support services. Those are the types of innovations mm. we need to be doing more of. Mm-hmm. Smart. Um, I'm telling you, I'm, I'm obsessed with that model. By the way. <laughs> yeah. Because it also keeps people in community. Right. These homes are, are being bought in Oakland where people are from. They don't want to age in, in Antioch. They want to, they became homeless in Oakland. They want to stay in Oakland. Mm-hmm. So those are the kinds of, um, you know, projects that I think give us hope that we can we can get to we can get to get somewhere. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, in these conversations, it's always good to keep in mind that I, I think it's the fastest growing um, segment of the population in, among people who are homeless are seniors. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. It's it's a great concern. Yeah. It, it's not like we had amazing infrastructure for our elders to age to in begin place with. in the first place. Yeah. So, yeah, you know, I think it, it continues to be a worry for those of us who are trying to, you know, figure out solutions in this space. Yeah. Well, just in our last couple of minutes here, um, I was just recently talking with nonprofit service providers um, for people experiencing homelessness about the sort of vastness of this problem and the pervasiveness of it and how we're always talking about, you know, solutions, 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 and like, what do we got to do? Of course, we want to talk about solutions, but is there something that you think needs to fundamentally change in the way that we think about this problem in order to actually go at solutions more effectively? Yeah, I, I do. I think that there is a sort of maybe unconscious or conscious norming that's happened that we're going to be a region that has extreme wealth and extreme poverty Mm. and that there's going to be a system of care like our providers and others that take care of the poor and that's what they're there for but that the but there isn't a, a bridge to to reintegrate our formerly homeless folks into our communities where they can thrive, where they can become leaders in our communities, where they can be the pipeline for employers to have the the workers of the future. So I think that haves and have nots um, coupled with sort of the systemic racism and the income inequality that perpetuates homelessness in the first place Mm -hmm. is part of our challenge. Like our mental model, our paradigm has to shift because if you're treating people like they are charity 
as opposed to creating a system where folks have opportunity to become self-sufficient. Those are two different approaches. Yeah. And I feel like we have, we have somehow as a society um, see homelessness as sort of an individual's failure mm. as opposed to structural systems that have made it such that disproportionately black, brown and indigenous folks across this region are sub subject to this terrible crisis. And I think that unless we target interventions that are culturally responsive to who's actually experiencing this problem and working with the people who are most impacted and putting them at the center of decision-making, we're, we're never going to get there. But I do think that there is a value and worthiness challenge that the Bay Area has to reckon with if we're going to really um, end, fam end homelessness for good. Yeah. Thank you for saying that. And um, thank you for having this conversation with me. I appreciate your time. No, I appreciate you very much. And thanks for having me on. That was Tamika Moss, founder and CEO of All Home. You can read their regional plan at allhomeca.org. I'm Laura Wenis, and you've been listening to Civic. Civic is produced at KSFP LP 102.5 FM in San Francisco. Our theme music is by John Dillon. Our team includes producer and contributor Mel Baker and assistant producer Liana Wilcox. KSFP is a project of the San Francisco Public Press, a nonprofit investigative newsroom. Find our reporting at sfpublicpress.org. Our staff includes publisher Lila LaHood, executive director Michael Stoll, assistant editor Noah Arroyo, copy chief Kurt Aguilar, photojournalist and reporter Jessica Prado, and reporter Nula Bashari. Civic airs Monday through Friday at 8 a.m. and 6 p.m. on KSFP 102.5 FM. Thanks for listening.